0: So, we're in Ecclesiastes 8, if you've got a Bible, verse 10. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. People toil to search it out, but no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Um, a useful way into this, this passage is to look at, if you've got your Bible open here, look at the difference between what the quester knows and what he sees. You could do this at home. You get a bit of paper, draw a line down the middle, and on one side write, according to this passage, what does the quester know? And then on the other side, what does he see? What does he observe? What does he actually experience? If you just went through and listed those things out, start making some comparisons, you start to see the issue that's going on. Uh, Let me sketch this out for you. In verse 10 and 11, we learn what the quester sees, and what he sees are the wicked buried. He sees these people who are corrupt, he sees these people who are wicked, whose hearts are evil, and yet they're getting a decent burial. He sees these people who are wicked, and yet they used to come and go from the holy place, that's the temple, that's the most sacred place. These people were coming in and out of worship. They're coming in and out of the equivalent of church services. And yet they're the wicked. Their hearts are far from God. And not only that, not only are they coming in and out of the temple, but they're receiving praise from people in Jerusalem. They're getting congratulated by righteous people, even though their hearts are evil, even though they're wicked. So the word that comes to my mind when you think about this is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Isn't it? It's is basically what we're talking about. Wicked people, but they're getting a decent burial, but they're coming in and out of church and they're worshipping God and they're getting slapped on the back for being such good people. But they're, they're not good people, they're wicked people. There's the sense of injustice. There's the sense that they're not being held accountable for what's really going on. They're not really taking responsibility for their actions. And the quester goes on to say that when that happens, when, when the sentence for the crime's not carried out, when people are not held accountable, then people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. And evil just flourishes, and wickedness just thrives, because no one's really held to account. Everyone just gets away with it. They can put a mask on, and they can put the happy face on, and uh, get congratulations. There's a sense of injustice here. That's what he sees. But then look in verse 12 and 13 at what he knows. Although a wicked person who commits a cr- hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him. Because the wicked don't fear God, it won't go well with them. That's what he knows. And that sounds a bit more like conventional wisdom, doesn't it? If You fear God, you're reverent before him, things will go well for you. If you're wicked and you don't obey God and you're evil, then your days aren't going to lengthen. This is kind of traditional, classic. This is the kind of thing you'd expect to read in Proverbs and sort of classic Israel's wisdom literature. But it's very different to what he's just seen. And then again in verse 14, he flips back to what he sees again. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This is all around the wrong way. And we've read this before. If you remember back in chapter 7, the righteous perishing in their righteousness, the wicked flourishing in their wickedness. People not being held to account for their character, not being held to account for decisions they make. Everything seems to be upside down. So you start putting this together and what do you notice about the difference between what he, what he knows and what he sees? It's total contrast, right? Total opposites, total disconnection. He knows that it'll go well if you fear God and you're reverent before him and he knows the wicked will be brought to justice, but that's not what he sees. What he sees are wicked people getting away with whatever they want. People of dubious character, just going about their stuff and, and people who are well-intentioned meeting their demise. That's what he sees. And there's something interesting, isn't there, about the way that he never really reconciles that. He just lets lets that sit there. This tension between what he knows and what he sees. That we know God is good and we know that he brings justice and we know that he ultimately takes things seriously, but that's not often what we see. And there's something about this. Isn't there something slightly liberating here? Even though it's uncomfortable, even though there's a tension here, isn't this refreshingly honest? Because isn't this where we live? Isn't this life? Isn't it full of contradiction? Isn't it quite nice to actually read a passage of the Bible that just doesn't give you easy answers? I mean, you see, even in verse 12 and 13 there, you just see this stark contrast. On the one hand, he says, a wicked person may live a long time. Then in the next verse, he says, but I know the days of the wicked won't lengthen like a shadow. What's it going to be? Which is it? Make up your mind. Do the wicked live a long time or do they not? But he doesn't try to resolve it. He doesn't try to mesh it all together and come up with a nice little... He just lets... He forces you to live with the tension between what you know and what you see. And isn't that real life? That's what I love about Ecclesiastes. It's just raw and it's honest. It's not a book that dropped out of heaven with a nice little ribbon around it that just gives little cliches and bumper sticker Christianity you know it's not that this is life it's where I live you know full of contradiction and tension and it's like that song the chaos the confusion it's all of that back in the 1990s the uh, country of Rwanda was held up as a huge success story of Christian mission it's the most Christianized still apparently is the most Christianized nation in Africa because of church planning efforts there, because of Christian missionaries going over there, 90% it was estimated of people in Rwanda were Christians. And a lot of active Christians, these weren't just passive Christians, there was a huge Protestant uh, presence there, there was a thriving evangelical community there in Rwanda. 90% Christian. And then 1994 happens. And in 100 days, 500,000 to a million people slaughtered. And a lot of those who did the killing were active members of Christian churches. So what do you do with that? It's Ecclesiastes 8. This is what it is. What, what we thought we know and what we think, you know, Rwanda is supposed to be the poster child for Christian missions. And then you have this. Incredible tension between what we, what we know and what we see. Which then forces you back to rethink what you thought you knew I was talking to a guy in our church some time ago who shared with me that his wife over the last few years has gone through some real health difficulties. And in the midst of that, one of the verses in scripture that she's really wrestled with is the one in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that says, God will not let you be tempted or tested, could be the same word, beyond what you can bear. And there it is right there on the page, that promise. And yet she has felt through this time that this trial, this health trial in her life is just more than she can possibly bear. And she's wrestled with that because here's a promise of God. This is what we know, but it's not what I see. It's not what she experienced. And you know this. And I mean, these might be faraway examples, but we know this in our lives, don't we? We know the verse in First Peter that says His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, but so often we live with a, a stunning lack of power in our lives. We live with a sense of frailty, weakness, brokenness. We read chapters like Psalm 1, the righteous will be like trees planted by streams of living water. They yield their fruit in season. Whatever they do prospers, and yet we, we live with the not much prosperity at all sometimes. Things aren't going well. We're battling. We're struggling. We're up against it. What happened to these promises? Why is there such this disconnection between what we know and what we see? There's another guy in the Bible who experienced this tension. John the Baptist I think was a good example of this. He a guy who knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He would baptized him, after all. John knew that Jesus was the one who would come to deliver Israel, to deliver God's people from their sins. He knew that Jesus was the anointed one. He knew that Jesus was the chosen one. And yet, things don't unfold the way that John wants them to. There's a disconnection for him between what he, what he knows of, about Jesus... And yet what he sees, he doesn't see Jesus doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. He doesn't see Jesus recruiting an army and taking on the Romans. What John sees is himself, John being thrown into prison. And he sees Jesus going out and reaching out to people far beyond Israel, far beyond God's chosen people. What's going on with that? He doesn't see Jesus bringing the kind of judgment that he's expecting to see. And so there's this disconnection for him between what he, what he knows of the Messiah and yet what he sees. And so at one point he sends, because he's in prison, he can't do much himself. So he sends some of his disciples, he sends some of his own followers to Jesus. And they come to Jesus in Luke 7 and they, they ask this question. They say, John just sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? It's a great question to ask of Jesus, isn't it? Should we be expecting someone else, do you think, uh, what's... At least it's honest, I suppose. And I love the way Jesus responds in Luke 7. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I love it how Jesus doesn't say, go back and tell John what you know. You know, he doesn't say, go back and just give him some more information. Go back and tell him these facts about me. Go back and tell him that he's wrong and he's got to stop doubting. He just says, go and tell John what you see. Tell him what's going on. Tell him what you're seeing in front of your eyes. Healing and restoration and renewal of people who, according to any classical definition, shouldn't have deserved it. Because what we're starting to see in the ministry of Jesus is something new, something different to what the Questor saw back in Ecclesiastes 8. Where the Questor saw only injustice and suffering and wickedness and weakness, now in the ministry of Jesus, through his teaching, through his miracles, through his healings, we're starting to see something new. We're starting to see the world as it should be. We're starting to see God's created intent restored. And of course, what you're seeing In the ministry of Jesus, what you're seeing close up is the kingdom of heaven. And what you're seeing in these instances is a little taste of what God is one day going to do for the whole world. This is where hope, this is where Christian hope is anchored. What you are seeing in the miracle, Jesus didn't just go around doing miracles to prove he was God. He went around doing these things and healing and giving back life and dignity, because that's what the kingdom of heaven is about, and that's exactly what God is going to do one day throughout the whole world. Because one day in the new creation, knowing and seeing will come together. And there will no longer be this disconnection between what we know in our heads and what we see and experience around us. Those things will be reconciled. Those things will come together in the new creation. When creation itself is liberated, and the earth is renewed, then God's shalom is going to prevail. Then knowing and seeing will be one. We know that God's a God of peace, and on that day, you're going to see peace, shalom, throughout the whole earth. We know that God's a God of justice. On that day, you're going to see it. You're going to see justice for all, the marginalized and the oppressed lifted up, equality. We know God's a God of abundance. On that day, in the new creation, you're going to see abundance for all. It's the purpose of miracles like the feeding of the 5,000. Not just to say, you know, here's a problem, let me fix it. But to say, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Abundance. And that's what life's going to be like one day when the kingdom is finally and fully established. So we have this incredible hope that one day this tension is going to be resolved between what we know and what we see. But we still live in the present with the reality that these can be disconnected things. Even though we live on the other side of of Jesus' first coming, even though we can look back on that event now, we're not at our final destination yet. The kingdom hasn't fully come yet, and so we still experience this tension. And often it's an unbearable tension between how things should be and what we know of God and what we read uh, sometimes in the scriptures, and yet the way that life actually is. And that tension just threatens to pull us apart sometimes. And in the midst of that, the quester back in Ecclesiastes 8 has some surprising advice. It's not particularly uh, philosophical advice. It's not particularly theological advice. But I think it's quite good advice for living in this tension between what we know and what we see. He basically says, find things in life that you can enjoy. He said in verse 15, So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. This is one of uh, six passages in Ecclesiastes that are often called the carpe diem passages. Uh, and they build an intensity through the book of Ecclesiastes, where he basically says eat and drink and enjoy your life, find things to enjoy, have a good time, because life's basically meaningless, is, is kind of the, the flavor that he gives it. The carpe diem passages. And I can't think of carpe diem, by the way, without thinking of Dead Poet Society. Anyone else with me on that? You know, Robin Williams, carpe diem. And the seize the day, seize the day, right? It's interesting though, because the way the quester talks about this idea of carpe diem, not that he uses those words, but the concept is there. It's quite different to what you see in Dead Poet Society. In the movie, it's seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. Remember that quote? Make your lives extraordinary, boys, is is the whole message. I think in Ecclesiastes, the advice is more find joy in the ordinary things. I don't think it's so much, you know, live this great extraordinary. So I think as Christians, maybe we overemphasize too much this idea of living the extraordinary life. What is that? I haven't found it. What is the extraordinary life? I've become to believe more and more in the glory of the ordinary. The beauty and the brilliance of seeing God and experiencing God and finding some joy in the midst of ordinary stuff, ordinary things. Eating, drinking, being glad, enjoying life, enjoying relationship, enjoying creation. What are the moments? What are the relationships? Where are the points at which you can experience joy and enjoy this good creation? Even in this often unbearable tension, in the midst of real hardship sometimes, And huge injustice and disconnected stuff and chaos and confusion. Are there things, little things, that you can find to enjoy? I remember when I was working back in in public relations, I used to part of my job used to be sending out media releases to media organizations, journalists. And because we'd often send out a lot of them or, or media releases to a lot of people at one time, we just had a fax machine that had loaded preset with all these lists fax lists you could press one button and the fax could go out to tens hundreds of people so i was sending out this one media release one day i was doing some work for the university of auckland and i needed to send out this media release to education media and there was a very clear list there whatever number it was on the fax machine which i which i entered but then i also saw that we had a fax list which was called all new zealand schools and i thought that could be useful Send out the media release to every school in New Zealand. It'd be nice for them to get it. They could be informed. They could be up to date with what's happening at the University of Auckland. And it's just so simple. You just press whatever it was, five or something, you know, and out it goes. A couple of weeks later, I got the bill for that fax. $2,000 for that one fax. And I knew that I couldn't couldn't pass it on to the client, right? Couldn't ask them to pay for my stupidity. I was going to have to do something about this, and so... I uh, wrote a little note with the invoice and I put it on my director's desk because I knew he was going to have to deal with this and deal with me. And uh, I put it on his desk late in the afternoon. He wasn't in the office at the time, so I knew he'd get it the next day and uh, it was (laughs) going to be interesting. And I remember that night, after I put this on his desk, um, Anna and I had plans to go out with her parents for dinner. And we went to this really nice restaurant. It was at the Sheraton and just had a lovely meal. And I just... So, like, I definitely had the dread of what was coming the next day. But somehow, in the midst of that, I almost just lost myself in it. You know how you do it? Maybe it's a little bit escapist. But with good food and good company, there was just this moment of joy in the midst of unbearable tension. <laughs> and the next day was a drama, I tell you. I got strips torn off me like you wouldn't believe. And I knew that was coming because I knew my director was very grumpy and it was all going to be bad. But in that moment, on that night, even in the midst of the storm like that, Something to enjoy, something to treasure, and just something to lose yourself in. I think we need that. I think we need those, those times. We need those moments. It's like that was my own little, my own little Last Supper, in some ways, maybe. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's a good example. You know, that, isn't that what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper? I mean, you think about that the night before His crucifixion. Think of what He was anticipating and, and knowing was coming. I mean, how could you even eat with that on your mind? And yet he does, he has this incredibly intimate and beautiful meal with his disciples, full of joy, full of grace, shares with them this this, um, wonderful ceremony that we've participated in this morning, this moment of joy in the midst of real darkness. Maybe that's a model for us. Maybe it's not so much about getting through all the stuff that's coming at you, but finding some joy in it. It's like the Quester says, that we might find joy in our toil, not in the absence of it, not after it's over, not after the storms passed, but right in the middle of it. Are there things you can find to celebrate? Are there things you can find? Are there things you can find to laugh at? I mean, when was the last time you just had a good old chortle? You know, a good old laugh, like you really laughed. Tell you, I laughed on Friday. It was funny. Um, our youth, our youth intern, Kieran. He's sitting up the back somewhere. He, uh, he was organizing this event on Friday night for our, as a youth fundraiser for the Vanuatu Missions trip. And he came into the hub, came into the church office, and said, I've just gone to pick up all these tubs of ice cream. Uh, and he was looking for this place called uh, I think Kiwi Ice Cream or something on Archer's Road in Glenfield. But he didn't know where he was going, didn't know the address. So he was driving up and down Archer's Road, and he saw this, shop, saw this store called Peaches and Cream. And I um, can't believe you know what that is. And he, um, he pulled up there and <laughs> he only set one foot inside, but that was enough to know this wasn't Kiwi ice cream. And he backtracked real fast, Lucky he didn't ask for assistance or anything, he just, uh, he just got out of there. But mate, I mean, I really have no purpose in telling you that story, other than to embarrass Kiran. And, uh, and tell you that sometimes all you can do is laugh, right? All you can do is just have a good old chuckle. But we're not laughing at you, Kiron. We're laughing laugh with you, you. know That's the thing, isn't it? Not to laugh at people. But to, can you find something this week to just have it? There's something, isn't there, just physically about the act of laughing that does help, that just is quite releasing and liberating. That, man, we just take ourselves too seriously. And I'm sure my wife's smiling because I take myself too seriously. I mean, I'm preaching at myself. This morning, you know, I take my job too seriously. I take you guys too seriously most of the time. Uh, you know, I need to lighten up. We need to, in the middle of all the stuff, life's hard enough, isn't it? The tension is unbearable enough. We just need to loosen up sometimes and relax a bit and find some stuff to laugh at. That's why this whole message is a bit more whimsical <laughs> than usual. Because we just got to, we've got to get into this, don't we? Find a few things to enjoy. Is there something this week that you can find? To really laugh with is there something that you can find are there things in your life what are the relationships that are just so precious is there something that you is there a dinner with friends great company a good meal and of course hear all this in the context of what we've said in the god and my stuff series this is not just becoming hedonistic people this is not just consumerism it's not about just self-indulgence but it's about enjoying the good world that God has placed us in the middle of. He's given us good things to enjoy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Life's hard enough. Let's learn to enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can enjoy this life you've given us. Lord, I'm really conscious that I don't do that enough, and that I don't experience as much joy in my life as I'd like to. And I ask, Lord, for myself, I ask for all of us, that you would just help us to cherish those moments, even when things are hard and even when we're up against it, to find the ordinary glimpses of your goodness and to cherish the tastes of of joy and happiness that we do have in this life. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the good things around us, even in the hard times. Open our eyes to see you so present with us and so willing to give us good things, signs of your presence, signs of your goodness, right where we are. We receive them gladly. Help us to enjoy them fully. In Jesus' name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90, 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.